Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are back with Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Well, I agree with you. I mean, you have the right to exclude anyone from your home or your business if you wish to. But once you let them in, and and, and that's the problem, isn't it, that um, these electronic media outlets want to consider themselves not news media. And where for years and years, we already know that the New York Times and the LA Times and the the whatever, they can print, they have freedom of speech, and and we can't interfere with that. And they they hide behind the cloak of we're we're newspapers, we're in the news business. Well, when the social media sites, what they're saying is, is it not true that, well, we're not really, so that's for why we can censor. Isn't that what they're saying? Well, I don't consider it censorship uh, when a social media company kicks somebody off or says that we're not going to allow certain content. I mean, you know, if you're hosting a dinner party and you tell somebody that um, they're not welcome to make certain jokes or that, you know, they have to leave if they're going to be disrespectful, you're not engaged in censorship. Only government officials can engage in censorship. You're engaged in content moderation. Uh, and social media companies have the same right, in my judgment, to do that, that we, um, you know, as homeowners or business owners have um, or should have uh, to make those kinds uh, of decisions. Now, I, I certainly agree with the proposition that uh, th- that there have been times when social media companies, mainstream media companies like The New York Times and others have tried to sort of have their cake and eat it, too. Right. Where they want all of the advantages that come uh, with uh, full constitutional protection of their right to freedom of expression, but they don't want to live up to certain responsibilities that necessarily come with that. That's also a discussion uh, that we can have. You know, I think uh, the founders understood that the, the free exchange of information was critically important to to government. Uh, and that's why they had the freedom of speech, because people not only would be informed, but they also could have discussions, arguments, dissertations, and whatever on different sides. And that gave people enough information to make honest, to make informed decisions about who to vote for, who not to vote for or what to be in favor of. So uh, I think it's it's really very important that whatever sources of information uh, go out to the public, I, I really truly believe that they have an obligation to let all people speak, uh, speak their mind. And yeah, if you don't want someone using vile words and stuff like that, well, that's certainly acceptable. But to censor people because of their political views uh, on social media, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, I don't think that's... Uh, 
in in compliance with the First Amendment. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. Uh, and and it's it's amazing um, how many uh, different unusual and surprising contexts this this right of free expression can show up. There's a couple of cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court this term, where uh, or one that has gone up and one uh, one that that's still pending review, um, where people have created a parody Facebook account mocking, for example, a local police department because of something that they've done, um, and then were arrested uh, under some ridiculous, you know, disturbing the peace or interference with government operations theory, um, you know, very clearly because the police were offended, their feelings were hurt, not because there was any actual criminal activity or because the person was in fact disrupting any government operation. And so it's kind of amazing how thin-skinned and petty um, government officials can be. Um, and you would think when they, they're engaging in censorship speech, you know, they might be doing it for these sort of uh, lofty or even sinister reasons, trying to suppress the vote or keep themselves in power or whatever. Um, and that does happen. But it can also be for the most incredibly petty and childish reasons that you can imagine. And so it's so important that regardless of why a particular government official is trying to silence uh, a citizen, that not only the Constitution but the judiciary recognizes the importance of allowing people uh, to speak freely, regardless of whether, um, you know, they're standing up on a soapbox, you know, um, uh, like Thomas Paine, um, you know, writing a great pamphlet or delivering a stirring political speech, or just making fun of a bunch of police officers who'd be clown themselves in some way. Um, First Amendment applies to all of it. Well, you've noticed, of course, the comedy in this country is gone. <laughs> there is a, there's no comedians anymore. I've been going, we like to go to uh, com- comedy comedy clubs and things like that. And over the years, I've heard some really atrocious things said in, in comedy clubs, uh, things that are now would be racist and uh, and, and everything else. Uh, and so one of the results of this uh, strict uh, prohibitions on speech, which are obviously rampant in the country, is that one of the one of the art forms that most people really enjoyed has uh, sort of taken a major hit? No, I couldn't agree more. I think comedy is uh, first of all, I enjoy it. Second of all, it's an extraordinarily or can be an extraordinarily effective uh, tool of social change um, and and you know sort of political enlightenment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorite humorists of all time is P.G. O'Rourke, uh, who passed away not too long ago, but uh, was was uh, an affiliate of Cato and is just a brilliant humorist and essayist. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing, unfortunately, in this era, I think, is a kind of a backlash. Um, I think that 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 sort of there are certain uh, cultural elites who recognize that the power to make fun of something, the power to ridicule something, the power to expose uh, you know, the sort of the hypocrisies of, of certain people, um, it, it can be very destabilizing, it can be very undermining. And so I don't see it so much from the government, although certainly there have been some examples that are disturbing. But a lot of where I think um, modern efforts to suppress speech come from is through uh, what we call the cancel culture, uh, you know, shunning people um, and um, kind of constantly holding the sort of kind of sword of Damocles over people's head that if you get out of line, if you say something um, that's uh, deemed to be offensive by the wrong people, um, you know, you'll be held up as, you know, a miscreant and 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 someone who uh, should be silenced and, and excluded from polite company. And so I agree with you. I think that there's I don't think that we've ever seen um, a, a more pervasive sense of self-censorship uh, than we are experiencing right now. And certainly uh, a lot of it involves humor. Uh, and I just I hate to think where we're going, because when people feel like they can't talk, the truth suffers. 
We are back with Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. When you can't talk and when you can't joke about things, that's when that's when the truth suffers. I mean, I think about, you know, all the times in my life when you could joke about a lot of things to people back and forth, and everyone accepted it as a joke. Uh, and it was enlightening in some cases, or it was a, a, a kernel for future discussions or additional discussions. But that is totally impossible now. There are things that you can no longer say at the dinner, t- dinner table, uh, and that's why... Uh, Thanksgiving dinners become sometimes uh, a little bit hairy. So I want to switch gears for a moment, uh, and I want to go to another related subject, and that is that I am concerned about the militarization of bureaucratic agencies of the federal government, like the BLM, the ATF. And as a rule, uh, as I say, we have to assume that firearms in the hands of bureaucrats represent a considerable degree of danger to the American people. The question is, is there no protection for the people from what is a a tactical overreach. In other words, I understand, you know, these people are not technically in the military. They're not members of the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, or whatever. They're members of bureaucratic agencies, and yet they are dressed, armed, armed to the teeth. They have MRAPs and Humvees and helicopters and the like. And so in Every single aspect of their and training, so in every single aspect, uh, they are really no different than the military, and yet they are now involved uh, in action in the in the local streets of our country. That is very very wrong to me, uh, and I want to know: is there no protection for people? Yeah, listen, I share all of those concerns. I would say that um, there is protection, but we have to look in the right place for it. This is not really, in my judgment, a constitutional issue. It's not even uh, so much a legal issue. You know, um, we discussed before this idea of whether the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 restricts some of this activity. Um, my judgment is really not, uh, that's not really what that law was about. That law was about using actual military uh, personnel for domestic law enforcement, which is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are very much a part of a domestic law enforcement agency, whether it's ATF or FBI, um, or, you know, even uh, once in a while you'll see online some of the, uh, uh, an accounting of which federal agencies have their own uh, SWAT teams or tactical units. And my God, I think the Department of Education has a tactical unit. Uh, Anyway, so yes, this is a a serious concern, but I think the primary um, uh, protection comes from the political process. We have to, you know, push back. We have to, uh, uh, explain to policymakers why it's such a bad idea um, to have uh, members of law enforcement who are so heavily armed. And, you know, unfortunately, this has been another one of those sort of incremental processes. Before the 1970s, there really wasn't anything su- as a, su- any such thing as a standing SWAT team uh, in this country. Um, the uh, genesis of SWAT teams seems to have been with the former chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, Daryl Gates, um, who appears to have actually first, uh, the acronym originally seems to have stood for Special Weapons of attack teams. And then it was, they realized that was sort of a public relations disaster. And that's how we got special weapons and tactics. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, this arose in response to a genuine need. There are times when you've got a hostage situation or a barricade situation. Um, we've also seen, you know, bank robberies by heavily armed perpetrators who are wearing body armor and carrying assault weapons. 
Um, and you know, an ordinary police officer with a with a with a handgun is not going to be able to take on that kind of a perpetrator. The problem, of course, is that once we equip a given uh, entity, whether it's a local law enforcement, um, a police department, or or a federal agency, uh, with uh, you know a a tactical capability with a SWAT team, to use the generic term, um, they're expensive. The, the, to, to be proficient in those kinds of operations requires constant training, and that costs money. And somebody within that organization has to justify the, that those expenditures. And the only way to do that is by using that entity, not just practicing with it, but going out and using it. And that's, I think, the main reason why we see um, the, the the sort of the explosion um, in the use of SWAT teams and other tactical units. Um, these days, SWAT teams, even though they were designed for hostage and barricade situations, they are mostly used to serve drug warrants. Um, that's not what they were created for, and that's not what they're particularly optimized for. But we use them for those things because somebody has to justify the expense uh, of keeping those capabilities on the books, and they are expensive. So where does this leave, where does this leave us? Well, I think where it leaves us is with a law enforcement uh, culture that does increasingly sort of see itself. I mean, look, see, literally sees itself in the mirror, dressed up in the way that you described, you know, wearing uh, the same kinds of clothing that special operators use, the, carrying the same kinds of weapons, um, but not held to the same rules of engagement. I can't tell you how many times I interact with people on Twitter who, when I'm commenting on some, uh, uh, you know, recent example of a use of force by a police officer, somebody will weigh in and say, hey, I'm a former Marine who served in Iraq. And if we had used force in the situation where it happened, here, I would have been court-martialed, right? So uh, all of the concerns I think that that that, that you've identified um, are serious ones, but I think we have to recognize uh, that the the probably the most fruitful avenue um, of correction here, the, the, the way to reform this, is to push back through the political process. I don't think that the law or the Constitution itself has very much to say about how heavily armed uh, members of law enforcement can be. So you don't believe that this kind of use of, of militarized force circumvents constitutional protections? No, not um, in a generic sense. I mean, I think certainly that it can. I mean, if you, for example, uh, uh, use a, uh, a SWAT team to do what they euphemistically call a dynamic entry into a home where uh, either you really didn't have sufficient basis to believe that there was wrongdoing or that there was a necessity to use that level of force. Um, unfortunately, this happened in Georgia, just an absolutely tragic uh, incident that happened about, I think, six years ago, um, where basically they had bad information for a confidential informant. They did a dynamic entry of a home, somehow missed the fact that there was a minivan with children's seats in it and toys in the front yard. They threw a, a flashbang grenade through the, the living room window, landed in the crib of a two-year-old child and nearly burned it to death, right? Um, I absolutely think the Constitution has something to say about whether that does or does not comport with due process, uh, but it's it, it, it's a very high bar to surmount. And what you're going to find is that judges tend to be extremely deferential um, to members of law enforcement about what level of force was necessary to affect the goal of whatever the operation was and to keep them safe. And will they overplay that? Will they go into court and mislead judges about whether they really needed to go in that heavy? Absolutely. They probably do it every day. But it's not an easy line to draw. And I think most judges essentially say, look, I've never done this kind of work. I don't know what's entailed. And I'm not going to be the person who you know, refused to sign off uh, on a dynamic entry warrant. And then some police officer got killed because they tried to serve a drug warrant on a heavily armed suspect without, you know, sort of a sufficient tactical support. That's the best case scenario for law enforcement. I do think they overplay their hand more often than they should, but it's not a trivial concern either. Have you ever watched any old 
movies from the 40s and 50s. So you know that back in that day, we had police who really misbehaved in many ways, and at least if you're judged by that. But thank God they were not heavily armed like SWAT teams are at this point. And I think a lot of that has gone by the wayside with education and with the efforts to have police understand that there are rules that they have to follow. But the problems come when you have these SWAT teams who just, they just feel they are the law instead of subject to the law. I mean, just how many, how many times have that, has that happened to the wrong house or the wrong apartment with serious complications? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, there have been any number of people who have been killed uh, by unnecessarily violent, uh, you know, tactical uh, raids. I mean, I look, I was in law school in Austin, Texas, less than 100 miles down the road from Waco uh, when the ATF assaulted the Branch Davidians there. And I remember, you know, and I'm, as I'm sure you know, uh, nearly everybody inside that compound ultimately was was killed in that raid. Um, and one of the most poignant things that I remember about that was the, the sheriff of Waco, Texas, who was interviewed and he said, you know, I wish somebody had just come and spoken to me because, you know, those guys are over here shopping uh, in the supermarket every Wednesday afternoon and they could have just apprehended them right there. And it was clear that the ATF didn't want to do it that way. They wanted to stage a massive tactical assault on that compound for probably a variety of reasons, both, you know, to to sort of try to uh, achieve some parity, you know, with the FBI, which has the premier tactical unit of all law enforcement agencies, the hostage rescue team, but also probably because they just somebody decided that they needed to train for this this, uh, you know, operation. And then once they had spent enough money training for it. At that point, what's going to happen if somebody comes along and says, oh, I don't, we don't need to do a, you know, a tactical assault on the compound. We'll just go arrest the guys at the grocery store. Well, now you've already spent like four or five million dollars training for the operation. Is anybody really going to say, oh, well, I guess that's money we just threw down the toilet. No, they're going to continue right with the plan and they're going to assault the compound, which is what they did. Um, unfortunately, they did it incompetently, leading to the necessary loss of life, both among members of the ATF, but also dozens uh, of innocent women and children who were burned alive in that compound. It was a disgrace. And I think it was brought on in large measure by the mindset that, that you've described and that, that concerns you so much. Um, because, again, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. Exactly right. And, and uh, you know, it's these things happen and we are all human beings and we have to certainly uh, understand that. But I think what we're in an, an, an era now where government officials uh, have such enormous egos and they so, feel so empowered that they can do anything they want. Uh, and that's what comes from money having access to politics. And that's certainly a subject for further discussion. So in our final few minutes, uh, uh, Clark, this has been an incredible discussion. Uh, do you have any parting words? I do. I'd like to add one thing to what you just said. Um, it's very important to understand what an immense measure of blame the courts hold for the, the problems that we have with law enforcement. Um, when you clothe people with as much power and authority as we clothe law enforcement agents in this country, it is absolutely essential that, that they come with a great deal of accountability. In other words, that when they abuse that authority, when they abuse that power, they must be accountable to we the people. And the Supreme Court has, has largely destroyed um, that sense of accountability by 
by inventing a variety of legal doctrines that enable police, prosecutors, and others to get a free pass when they violate people's rights. These go by terms that are maybe familiar to some of your listeners, qualified immunity. There's absolute prosecutorial immunity that makes it impossible to sue a prosecutor no matter how badly they've misbehaved. These are all inventions of the U.S. Supreme Court in a conscious effort to make members of law enforcement less accountable to we the people so they don't have to answer to us. There are very few priorities that are uh, of, of greater importance to us here at Cato than eliminating these judicially confected immunity doctrines that enable police who violated people's rights to get off the hook. And we are leading the effort to eliminate both the qualified immunity uh, defense and absolute prosecutorial immunity. And I think that within the next five years, we're going to succeed. Well, Clark Neely, I want to thank you very, very much for an incredible discussion. Uh, we've touched on many of the things that are disturbing many, many people in the country today. Uh, those who have those who have the intelligence and the knowledge of history to understand to understand the risks that we are now facing because that document, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, uh, is not really being followed as precisely as it should be. It puts us all at risk, uh, and I know the Cato Institute is uh, at the forefront of protecting us. Uh, as a libertarian myself, I appreciate everything the Cato Institute is doing. So once again, Clark Neely, thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. But my pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning.